It's a, it's a system where the government will, will tell you the information that they think is important to them. The defense will elicit the information that they think is important to them. You're going to channel uh, all of this information, and I'm going to give you legal instructions. And we can't have 12 jurors doing the investigation that the lawyers and the government and the police have done. And if any of you have a problem doing that, raise your hand now, and I'll show you the, you know, the back door. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. My co-host Bob Ambogi is traveling today, so he's not going to be joining us. Uh, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And today's show is sponsored by Clio, Landy Insurance, and Top Class Actions. Today's topic is... What juries are doing in the jury box? Jurors are Twittering during trial, posting updates on cases in Facebook. And last month, the judge discovered that several jurors in a big federal drug case in Florida had conducted research online on their case. The judge had no option but to call a mistrial. We're living in a technology-driven world, and we turn to the Internet daily, often hourly, to get fast information. But when that happens in the jury box, it interferes with our justice system. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to look at some of these cases that resulted in the mistrial due to actions of jurors. And we'll also discuss what jurors need to know before they walk into that box and what they may need to change in the court system to solve those problems. Our first guest today is jury behavior expert Edward P. Schwartz. He's a, uh, well, it's a PhD. Dr. Schwartz is a nationally recognized expert on jury decision making. In addition to his trial consulting, he's published numerous articles on the subject and has taught about juries at Harvard University, Yale University, Boston University, and that's where he's currently on the faculty of the law school. He's an expert game theorist. And Dr. Schwartz has an acute awareness of the strategic opportunities present in any jury trial. He also writes the blog, The Jury Box, at juryblocksblog.blogspot.com. Welcome to the show, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks very much for having me. And our next two guests are attorneys who worked at the Florida federal case that resulted in the mistrial when jurors researched their case online, attorney Peter Rabin and attorney Sean Ellsworth. Uh, Peter is a defense attorney with, in, from Miami, Florida, and attorney Ellsworth is the founding member and managing partner of the Miami Beach-based Ellsworth Law Firm. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you very much, Craig. Thanks, Craig. Well, Sean and Peter, since uh, your story's right on the heels of what's happened, why don't you share our, your story with our audience? Uh, sure, Craig. Sean and I were trying this uh, case in, in Fort Lauderdale. It was a two-month trial. The allegations were that the defendants were involved in an Internet uh, pharmacy uh, case, and, and we had doctors and pharmacists and some businessmen. We were on trial, and, and it was uh, it was very interesting. Uh, we had seven weeks of testimony, and it, it was heavily contested, and there were a lot of unique issues regarding whether there was a crime that was committed, whether the defendants believed that they were committing a crime, and there was affirmative defenses regarding government estoppel and attorney-client um, advice. And on the third day of deliberation, one of the jurors, not the foreperson, sent out a note 
perplexed, confused, and intrigued because in the course of the give and take of having a conversation with another juror, she learned, that juror told her, that he had acquired information that she was unaware of, and he had a superior bargaining position, so to speak, in the deliberation. Well, she was a little bit upset and outraged by that because she thought she was a conscientious person. So she sent a note out to the judge, and the judge um, did the appropriate judicial uh, reaction. He brought her out and he interviewed her, and she said, I'm, I'm deliberating with this juror, and he says, I found out something about the defendants that you don't know about, which you know, sent her into a, into a frenzy because she knew that that was inappropriate. And the judge, at, at our request, brought that offending juror out, and he conceded that he was Googling uh, some of the defendants uh, at night on his spare time uh, on his personal computer, um, and he learned that extrinsic evidence, uh, which was of, of a prejudicial nature, and on, he was forced to admit that he, it affected his deliberation. Well, you know, the judge's response was, was to try and find out whether this tainted juror infected the rest of the venire. So we all decided that we'd bring each juror out one by one and find out if they were contaminated by this offending juror. And we were stunned to find out that almost every juror had been online uh, Googling various features of the case. One of the issues was what, what is a face-to-face meeting between a doctor and a patient? A juror had looked that up. One of the issues was what a controlled substance was. One of the jurors said that they were on the DEA website. One of the issues is whether a DEA guidance had the effect of, uh, of a statute or a law, and one of the jurors said that they had gone on Wikipedia to find out what a DEA guideline was. Other jurors were, were looking up the defendants, Googling them, some of the defense attorneys. They were going on their websites. It was, it was a stunning revelation. And after three or four of these uh, concessions by the juror, juries, the judge kind of threw up his hands and said, you know, basically this trial's over. Well, Dr. Schwartz, are, are you seeing this kind of behavior across the country? Uh, well, I, I mean, everyone's starting to see it. Um, I am kind of curious in, in Peter's case whether or not there had been a judicial instruction about Internet use prior to the start of the trial. Uh, the, the answer is no. There's a, a, a cautionary line in the 11th Circuit instructions which basically says that you're supposed to uh, decide this case based upon the evidence that's introduced, and because the judge thought that there may be some publicity, he was just making a throwaway comment at the end of each afternoon, pay no attention to any TVs or newspapers and try and stay away from any exposure to the case. But I think the judge, as were most of us, were uh, at least uh, beyond, behind the curve in terms of technology, and, and I think no one thought that jurors were, were Googling uh, all of this information at home. So the answer to your question is there, there was not a specific admonition given to jurors. Um, yeah, you know, I, 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 my sense is that most of the instances in which people are going off and, uh, and, and Googling are um, situations where uh, the judge hasn't bothered to say anything to the uh, jurors. You know, I think most jurors... If they're told, look, stay off the Internet, don't go do research about this case, most of them are content to just follow instructions. Um, you know, I think there may be uh, other jurors, maybe your Generation Y types, um, who are you know, young, impatient, maybe anti-establishment types, whose view would be, look, you know, I know the judge told me not to go uh, do a Google search on this, 
but, you know, they, they do sort of an internal cost-benefit analysis and say, you know what, in this case, it's really important for me to go off and find this piece of information, and what does this old judge know anyway? Um, you know, and I think you do have to worry about that kind of behavior, but I, I imagine that, that with proper instructions for the case, those instances are going to be few and far between. Sean, are you going to handle your next case differently or get a different type of an admonition from the judge? I think Dr. Schwartz hit the nail on the head there. I think that we had jurors that uh, sort of had an internal uh, cost-benefit analysis. It was a complicated uh, a complicated federal case, uh, and uh, I think they thought that uh, that they needed to, to get some more information. And, uh, and I, I am going to try my next case to, assuming uh, that the jurors have uh, gone online and Googled uh, Google the facts about the case, and uh, I'm certainly going to Google the facts myself before the case starts. See what's out there. Dr. Schwartz, what do you think the, the judge can do to enforce these kind of restrictions on, on jurors? Well, you know, here's what I think. I, I think this is not a control problem, or at least that it's not helpful to think of it as a control problem. You need to think of this as a communications problem. Um, the research that's been done about admonitions is very clear. There are two things that help admonitions be effective, because typically they're not, um, you know, especially the ones disregard any pretrial uh, information you've seen on uh, newspapers or television or what have you. But if you can pre-instruct jurors before a problem arises, then that tends to be helpful. And secondly, you have to give them an explanation about why it is you're instructing them to, to behave the way you want them to behave. So as an example, you can instruct successfully jurors to disregard um, lie detector uh, evidence if you go the extra step of explaining to them that polygraph machines just aren't all that reliable, and because they're not reliable and we can't be confident in the results, that's why we don't admit those results as evidence, right? So that's an example of a kind of admonition that tends to work because in those circumstances when the judge gives the jury an explanation as to why it is that the decision has been made um, that it has. So I think it's not a difficult thing to do that with respect to the online research. I think most people sort of accept the proposition that when you're on jury duty, you're not supposed to go talk to your family and your friends. You're not supposed to call up your brother-in-law who's a lawyer and ask questions about the case. You're not supposed to read the newspaper accounts of the case. And so you just need to analogize between those things that people have sort of accepted are, are verboten and these new versions of essentially the same ideas. Peter, what did you find when you were talking to the jurors? Did they really think that it was legitimate for them to do online research outside of the parameters of the case? They, they, they were not upset about what they did. They kind of said, you mean we weren't supposed to do that? Because we were doing that the whole trial. And I think that the judge understood that there wasn't a serious enough um, instruction to them because... As the jury was being discharged, the prosecutor asked the court what he was going to do, and the court said, you mean to the juror, and he just shook his head and said nothing. And I think it's because, I, I think in retrospect, the judge may have realized that, that the pattern jury instructions and what is told to the jury uh, need some updating. But in answer to your question, the, the juror 
they were sheepish about what they had done, and they felt bad that they spent eight weeks trying a case and they weren't able to finish it off. But I don't think they felt that they had done, um, you know, a, a serious, you know, infraction. I don't think I don't think that they felt as though they were they were caught with their hands in the cookie jar, so to speak. But it, you know, a little bit of what Dr. Schwartz said. The the problem with explaining to a jury why they shouldn't be Googling X, Y, and Z brings up the forbidden fruit factor, which is when you tell people that there's information out there that is not reliable and they shouldn't go looking for it, you're going to have those, uh, you know, those curious individuals who are, are going to say, what's out there that they're afraid that I can't handle? So that that's a problem. And, and the other thing I wanted to, to say is I think the... Judicial instruction, I agree with Dr. Schwartz in this regard, a judicial instruction is very, very important, and a judicial explanation is very, very important. But the, the wrath of a federal judge also is important. I think the judge has to use the, the stick approach. And I will tell you that this federal court judge, um, in his next trial, gave a serious admonition to the jury that they are not to utilize uh, the Internet, they are not to acquire extrinsic evidence, and he specifically told them that their failure to obey his instruction would result in a contempt citation. So I think what this judge did was a little bit of both, a little bit of, um, of the carrot and a little of the stick. Sean, there have been some other situations. There's a $12.6 million judgment in Arkansas that um, a building's product company is seeking to overturn, claiming that a juror used Twitter to send updates during the civil trial. And as I mentioned in the introduction, there have been some people that are uh, using Facebook to post case updates. Uh, I'm gathering that didn't happen in your case, but what do you think the judge's reaction would have been to that? Well, it certainly didn't happen that we knew about. And uh, in fact, the, the fact that the jurors were doing what they were doing uh, none of us had any idea that was going on throughout the throughout the trial. Uh, I, I think if 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 uh, if jurors were caught uh, posting Twitter updates or Facebook updates about the status of the case, you know, I I, I would question whether or not that, that that depending on the update, whether or not they were indicating some form of an opinion on the case prior to it being submitted to them uh, to make a decision after hearing all the facts. And I think that'd probably be inappropriate. Uh, and uh, you know, to our knowledge, that didn't happen in this case. But uh, I can certainly, uh, I, I'm just living out there. You see all the Twitter updates and all the Facebook updates, and uh, the courtroom is uh, is a microcosm of life. Dr. Schwartz, are we going to have to start taking away cell phones and computers from uh, jurors and sequestering them? I really don't think that the draconian approach is the way to go here. Um, I think better communication with jurors is important. I think that. You know, the danger with Twitter and Facebook updates is not really the outgoing information, except to the extent you're worried that the parties or the attorneys can find it. It's the fact that it allows for the possibility that information comes back in. You know, people post comments, uh, they drop them emails and things along those lines, and, and we certainly don't want that, that flow going the other direction, and I think that's particularly difficult. Um, you know, I think, again, you need pretrial instructions that are very clear. And frankly, I think that judges should tell jurors that they like blogging. They like Twittering. Twitter your, your little heart's content. Send as many blog posts as you want about your experiences as a juror. The more people understand what jury duty is about, the better. This is terrific. More information is good. There's just one rule. You can't do it until the trial's over. 
That's it. Done. What do you think of that restriction, Sean, Peter? Uh, I agree. I have, um, I, I have no problem with that. And I think um, if, you, if the court were to tell the jury they're free to do that, um, I, I think you know, it's a great step. But uh, that you're, you're still going to have the, um, the juror who is curious, the juror who feels as though something is being held back, and the juror who's, who's going to say, it's 10 o'clock at night, I'd like to know what A, B, and C means. I'd like to know uh, a little bit about, you know, X, Y, and Z, and I think they're holding back information, and I'm not allowed to ask questions. Who's going to know? Who's going to know? And it's like when we were children and our parents said, you know, curiosity killed the cat, and our retort was, but satisfaction brought him back. There's the juror out there who's going to say, who's going to know, and if they want me to come to the right decision, they can't, you know, they can't play all of those rules of evidence. Whenever somebody asks a question and I want to know the answer and somebody says objection and it's sustained, they're cheating me out of information and and. I'll play by my own rules. I agree with Dr. Schwartz is there has to be communication. But in answer to your question, I don't think we can, you know, take away their, their phones. I don't think we can take away their computers. And I don't think we can sequester them. I think appropriate communication, um, there has to be a strong admonition that borders on threats, and there has to be trust. The whole jury system is based upon uh, trust. We trust that the prosecutors are, are prosecuting in good faith. We trust that the uh, the judge is going to follow the rules and make sure that everyone um, follows them and gives everyone a fair trial. And we trust the jurors are going to do do uh, their job and do it in an appropriate way. So it all boils down to um, trust because that's that's the human aspect of the criminal justice system. Sean, do you think this is going to change voir dire in the way that you I, I bring think in the case? Going to change voir dire. I think I think once the legal community starts to understand that. Uh, we live in a society now where people uh, are, to say frequently is probably an understatement, go online to find out information. Uh, I think that once we, we sort of get that straight and get that in our heads, we're going to go ahead and, 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 and Google and find out all we can find out about our case. And I'll tell you an interesting side note. Uh, we were allowed uh, Internet access and computers in the courtroom uh, as attorneys, and during jury selection, I was Googling the jurors to see if there was any information on them during jury selection. So uh, it certainly works both ways. Uh, and I think the change will be that we as attorneys are going to have to ride under the assumption that irrespective of a judge's instructions, the jurors are going to go on the Internet and find out information about the case. We should know what that information is before uh, they go ahead and do that in our own cases. Dr. Schwartz, in the, in the circumstance of mistrials, I mean, it sounds to me like just about every juror at some point in time is going to violate this or at least have be very tempted to, to look online or send updates or do something that is outside of, of what is allowed. Do you think that you're going to see a lot more attorneys investigating this and trying to use this as an additional basis for mistrials? Where do you see the appellate courts going on this? Well, you know, it's a little unclear. You know, post-verdict, you run into uh, FRE 606B and whatever the state equivalents are, right, which speak to the ability of jurors to testify to things having to do with their internal deliberations. But once you get to Google results and Wikipedia, now you're talking about extrinsic information and, and sort of everything's up for grabs. 
Uh, so there's going to obviously be a lot of judgment calls made by judges about how prejudicial the information is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there is a, a bit of a prophylactic step that could be taken here. And if I can just return to one of Peter's comments about curiosity, um, you know, anticipation for this, I pulled out my own blog entry about it about a month ago. And um, what I talked about in there was the fact that there are other ways to try to satisfy as much of the curiosity of jurors as possible. And one of them is to allow jurors and, in fact, encourage jurors to ask questions at trial. And more and more jurisdictions are permitting this. And I think that if judges are aggressive about encouraging jurors, look, if you have open questions, if you have things that aren't being answered here, one, be patient. We'll get to it. Two, if we don't get to it, send me a note. We'll see what we can do to get you answers um, that you may be able to drive down the temptation of jurors to go off and look for answers on their own, but you know maybe the attorneys have different views. No, I, Dr. Schwartz, I think that's a great that's a great point. I think looking back at our case, if if a juror had sent out a note, uh, can we get a definition of face to face? Could we get a definition of of what a DEA guideline uh, is? That would have been helpful to the juror, and it may have you know forestalled this from occurring. So I think I think you make a, a great point. Um, I think if if it, it takes a modern jurist, however, to be open to these technological advances and to recognize that, that there's uh, 12 people, and so you're going to have insatiable appetites back there for information, and to suggest to a jury, if you have any questions, just send them out. That, that's a, you know, taking a, a turn in the law. It's just, that's not done. Maybe it could be done, maybe it should be done, and I know that a lot of the states are uh, suggesting that jurors should be asking questions, and the states are obviously uh, laboratories for for change. So I think it's a good idea, Dr. Schwartz, and I think um, an enlightened jurist may think that the, a hedge against juror Googling is to say, before you go to Wikipedia, ask me. We need to take a short break, and when we return, we'll hear more about the court jury system and jurors updating through the Internet. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. When it comes to protecting your legal practice, how confident are you that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price? At the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, we know that law firms insured with us can answer yes on both counts. Visit our website at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. TopClassActions.com ethically connects attorneys to potential clients. At TopClassActions.com, attorneys can review submissions, locate effective plaintiffs for new lawsuits, or advertise their settlement to add more claimants. With membership in our attorney network... 
You review complaints submitted by Top Class Actions viewers, and it's free to try. No credit card required for the free membership. Go to topclassactions.com slash attorney. That's topclassactions.com slash attorney. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome back Dr. Edward Schwartz, attorney Peter Raven. He's a defense attorney from Miami, Florida, and attorney Sean Ellsworth is managing partner at Ellsworth Law Firm. Well, just before the break, we were talking about whether or not uh, we need to start allowing jurors to ask questions. This isn't a new topic. Um, Dr. Schwartz, What? there's been some experiments with this before. Sure. I mean, there are states that regularly permit it now. Um, Arizona is always on the forefront of um, these kinds of innovations. Uh, New York, uh, you know, ran a pilot program, which was very successful. I think they've implemented it uh, system-wide, but I, I may be wrong on that. Um, and I believe that that judges are typically allowed to permit the practice at their discretion, um, you know, within the, the, the federal courts, uh, for instance. Um, and I won't throw anyone under the bus, but I do know a couple of federal judges that have done it. So hopefully, uh, so hopefully they're not in, not getting in trouble. Um, but I, I do think that anything which engages the jurors, which treats them with respect, which um, which seeks to um, uh, increase the um, the perception that you know the court appreciates uh, their input into the system. All of that is going to increase the willingness of the jurors to, in other respects, play by the rule. Well, there's a case that. Um in Australia, where we have a lot of lawyer-to-lawyer listeners, which the Supreme Court in uh, Canberra has ruled that Facebook is a sufficient way to serve legal documents to defendants who cannot be found, which seems to me to be a bizarre ruling, but certainly uh, indicates that this is becoming extremely pervasive. Sean and Peter, what kind of changes do you see coming in addition to to jurors uh, asking more questions? Do you think that we're going to see Internet in the courtrooms? Well, that, Craig, that's an interesting interesting point because the the, the trial that Peter and I were involved with, uh, where this where this uh, juror misconduct resulted, uh, was an internet pharmacy trial, and it was basically uh, patients who were going online seeking interaction through the internet with physicians, and and many times that in, interaction that the patient received with the physician resulted in a prescription that was then sent via the internet to a pharmacist who filled the prescription. So to the extent that in this particular case, we were, uh, Peter and I, were arguing that, that this type of technology is out in front and this is something that's going to be, uh, it's going to be commonplace in, in, in the future, uh, I can analogize that to service of process through the internet. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that I've learned uh, in, in, in being involved in these internet trial cases is that the law is a little bit behind technology, uh, and it has been uh, from the very beginning, and, and it takes the law some time to catch up with technology, and I think both Peter and Dr. Schwartz have made some excellent suggestions on catching the law up to uh, technology. 
Where do you, uh, let's take a look at this from a remedial standpoint. What do you think attorneys should be doing? Uh, we talked about a couple of things, uh, more communication with uh, jurors and perhaps some some changes in voir dire. What do attorneys need to do to prevent this uh, from happening and prevent mistrials? I mean, it's a, an eight-week trial to go up in smoke is a real waste of time. I think Dr. Schwartz had quite a few uh, good ideas. Uh, in addition to the court uh, telling the jury at the start of, uh, of the case that uh, 20 years ago we would tell you that you're not supposed to go out to the crime scene. And we know that from Law and & Order and Dragnet. And the judge could modernize that by, by saying, uh, nowadays with the advent of uh, Google, everyone has the quote-unquote crime scene at their fingertips. And I have to remind you that just like you couldn't go to the crime scene 20 years ago, you can't go and do this research on your own, that the, the, a system has developed where we're going to bring you this information. It's, an, it's a system where the government will, will tell you the information that they think is important to them. The defense will elicit the information that they think is important to them. You're going to channel uh, all of this information, and I'm going to give you legal instructions. And we can't have 12 jurors doing the investigation that the lawyers and the government and the police have done. And if any of you have a problem doing that, raise your hand now and I'll show you the, you know, the back door. And if at the conclusion of this case you do need additional information, what we'll do is we'll confer with the parties and decide uh, how, to, how to handle your curiosity. The other aspect of it is juror voir dire. Many of the states allow the lawyers to get up and talk to the jury beforehand in federal court it's at the discretion of the judge, but I think in those instances the judges uh, have to decide that if they're not going to uh, interact with the jury about that, then they have to give the, the prosecutor and the defense attorneys or the lawyers the opportunity to sit and talk to the jury about how they've spent many years and many months uh, preparing this case and we're going to bring you all the information and 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 we're going to ask you not to conduct your own investigation uh, because it defeats the purpose of all the work that we've done. And if you have any issues at the close of this case, if there are any gaps that you think in the knowledge, bring it to our attention and we'll decide how to handle it. Dr. Schwartz, in your practice, I mean, you're a, you're a jury consultant. What advice are you giving to attorneys? Well, you know, I think one advice is move it along. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I do think that, um, that, you know, I've got an iPhone. I admit it. And I, you know, it's like, it's like, uh, the ring in Lord of the Rings when it's in my pocket. It calls to me. It wants me to pick it up and to touch it and to play with it. And my wife is constantly teasing me about this. If the trial is dragging out forever and if the information is slow to come, I think that's just going to increase the temptation for jurors to go find out on their own. You know, look, why do I have to wait another three days to find out when this employee was dismissed from the company or whatever piece of information the juror thinks is sort of the linchpin of the case? You know, I can just go find it for myself. So I, I think that the attorneys are going to have to streamline their presentations. Technology can be a big help for that, I think. Um, and you can't tell your case like a murder mystery anymore, right? You have to give them the punchline up front, I think, um, so that they kind of know where you're going and, and that they don't try to get there before you. Well, gentlemen, we've reached the end of our program, so it's time to wrap up and get your final thought as well as your contact information. So, Sean, let's start with you. Well, thanks, Craig, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here with uh, Peter and Dr. Schwartz. Uh, my, my, my final thoughts would be that, uh, that uh, you know, it was certainly a, a startling event to have eight weeks of your, uh, of, of, of your very hard work in, in, in the courtroom uh, brought to a sudden halt because uh, one of the jurors had gone online uh, through Google and done their own research. Uh, 
Uh, I think all the speakers today have, have brought up some very good suggestions to prevent that from from happening again. And uh, and uh, you know, as I said before, I think that the uh, the, the the law is a is a little slow to catch up to the technology, and, and hopefully it will. My my contact information, and I'm I'm in uh, Miami Beach, Florida. My email address is Sean. That's S E A N at E L L S L A W Ellslaw dot com. And Peter, Craig, uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. It was a uh, it was a memorable two months. Um, there was a lot of camaraderie, and we learned a lot about um, uh, <laughs> federal trials and juries. I think one of the things that that I'd like to bring to the attention of the, of the listeners, and and I'm not sure if they're all lawyers out there, but the reason this was brought to the attention of us and the court, because uh, there was a juror that we, and we told her she was heroic, uh, that brought to the court's attention that people were Googling, and her conscientious um, you know, aspect of her personality knew that it was wrong, knew that the lawyers were doing the best they could to bring the appropriate information, and she brought it to everyone's attention. And had she not done this, uh, I don't know if the case would have gone to verdict or been mistried, but no one would have known about that. And it's and it's not unlike what happened um, with Senator Stevens in Washington, D.C., but for an FBI whistleblower, I don't think, uh, you know, Attorney General Holder would have known about the misconduct that, that his employees weren't involved in, nor would the judge have known about it either. So I think it's very important for people out there that either uh, are going to be on jury duty or just you know consider jury duty. That it's very very important that everyone know that there are rules that have to be followed. Um, my name is Peter Rabin, R A B E N, and I can be reached at P R A B E N at BellSouth.net here in uh, Florida. Great, and Dr. Schwartz. Well, Craig, thanks very much for having me on. I love this stuff. Uh, you should know that it has been a hot topic of conversation on the list serve of the American Society of Trial Consultants. We have, as they say, been all over this. Um, you know, I think, I think that, that the lesson here is the lesson with a lot of unforeseen things that take place with jurors, which is, um, the courts and the lawyers need to communicate better with these people what their rights and responsibilities and obligations are. Um, get buy-in early in the process, and I think we can avoid most of the problems, uh, with this. Um, but it'll be interesting to see where it goes uh, in the future. I hope it doesn't result in people being locked away in internetless hotel rooms uh, during trial. Um, my contact information, I can be reached at Schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z, at E-P-S-Consulting.com. Uh, my blog is Juryboxblog blog at blogspot.com. Um, and... Um, uh, my website is just eps-consulting.com. Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for being on the show today. And that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. To our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at legaltalknetwork.com. And all of our shows are available on iTunes as well. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.